Today's outstanding sponsor is Unimus, an easy-to-use network automation and configuration management solution. Discover how to start automating your network in under 15 minutes at unimus.net slash packetpushers. That's unimus.net slash packetpushers. Unimus, network automation and configuration management made easy. Hey, would you consider an open source network operating system for your data center? Sonic, backed by sponsor Dell Technologies, is worth investigating. Automate effectively, monitor deep telemetry, and enjoy excellent support from Dell's global organization. Visit packetpushers.net slash dellsonic to find out more. Packetpushers.net slash dellsonic. Free-range routing is an open-source routing protocol suite you can run on Linux. Armed with nothing more than a basic understanding of Linux and the FRR docs, I was able to get a BGP session nailed up quickly. The CLI of FRR has a familiar vibe if you've been working on networking gear for a while. Now, we have talked about free-range routing on the Packet Pushers podcast network before. If you want to hear those episodes, check out Heavy Networking episode 401 and Priority Q episode 112 for some more free-range routing background. But today we're going to jump into some updates, get the state of free-range routing, see where things are at. And our guest today is Donald Sharp. Donald, welcome to Heavy Networking, Free-Range Routing. Man, you can uh, up to your, I was going to say elbows, but it's really more like your neck, uh, maybe over your head with free-range routing for some number of years now. Uh, so uh, welcome back, and uh, thank you for coming on to get us caught up on where FRR is at. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Well, let's catch up, man, the state of free-range routing. If you would, um, uh, these days, who is the typical sort of organization that's even running FRR in production? Uh, wh- why are they running it? What are the use cases and so on? I think that the answer there, who isn't? Running FR already, <laughs> okay. right? From the low end, I shouldn't say low end. You can you can um, purchase VOS, right? Which is a uh, NOS that's an open source NOS that people can run and use, all the way up to data center applications via Sonic or Cumulus Linux or uh, Dent as well. Um, if you're interested in more of the telco space, there's Danos that's using FRR. Um, we know that firewalls like PFSense have started to switch over to use an FRR. So, so the use case is routing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, there is definitely some holes still in what FRR can provide, but that's, you know, that's a work, we're a work in progress. So I think you just made a really important point there without knowing you were making it perhaps, but free range routing is a routing protocol suite, not a network operating system by itself, correct? Yeah, and that, it's exactly true. And, and it's the combination of both the network operating system or the forward and plane and the control plane that really make FRR powerful. And typically, when we talk about FRR, it's just the control plane. But you actually have to have a deep understanding of the data plane and how to get that working. There's a lot of nuance there as well. Okay, so we can run FRR on a lot of things. A lot of different operating systems have chosen FRR as part of uh, their control plane and how they're doing their routing. If I want to run FRR, uh, what is the current stable recommended version? Because there's a lot of versions floating around out there. Yeah, so 7.4 came out in June, and uh, that's the current recommended version from my perspective. The next version, 7.5, is coming out in a couple weeks. We're gonna, we have uh, three releases a year. February, June, and October. And so basically, it's just uh, whatever has come in in the last three or four months is what goes into the next release. Uh, you're recommending then that once a major rev comes out, like like 7.4 is uh, current and stable and recommended now, but when 7.5 does come out, that that would be the thing I should upgrade to? Or is it one of those like, ah, wait around for a little while until it, uh, it's fully baked and we get the bugs out and then go to, go to 7.5.1 or 7.5.2 or something like that? I think you should choose a version of FRR that has the features you're interested in using. If you, if, <laughs> I see Greg laughing over there. <laughs> so, I feel like I'm talking to a sales rep. What features do I need? Well, I think you need the features that you want to have. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, maybe That's there's some nuance sales. here. You're just reflecting my question back at me, which is a straight up sales technique. You know? Well, so. Why upgrade if I have something that's working? Upgrades are expensive and they can be not only expensive, they can also be dangerous, right? 
So there's, there's vet in time, there's making sure it works, and there's a risk involved with it. If you have something that's working for you, why upgrade? And that's why you see these five and six-year cycles of people have before they upgrade versions of stuff. It's because they have something that's worked, they know it works, and there's not worth going spending the time and effort to upgrade. So if you have something that's working for you, I'm, I'm more than happy with you sticking with it, in all honesty. So okay, it's like anything. If I don't have a reason to upgrade, then, then I, I wouldn't necessarily. Um, is it fair to say that once a major rev comes out, like we go from 7.4, then 7.5 is out, would that be considered stable? From an FRR yeah. perspective, yeah, yeah, we consider it stable. That's okay. and that's then the way FRR is currently set up is we have the current release and the two previous releases are what is supported. So if you come to us and I say, "Hey, I'm running 4.0 and I see this bug," my answer, first answer, is going to be, "Yeah, can we reproduce in something newer? That's three years old now. You okay, know, that's, yeah, you know, that's close to five or six thousand commits behind." That's a that's a significant number of changes in in the world, and and probably has already been fixed. The bug hmm. probably has, and I think the flip side there is you have to have a realistic expectation from an open source project that you know fixing a three year old version with a micro release, a point release, is something you can ask a commercial vendor to do, perhaps, but asking an open source project to do that, you need to have some common sense. Or being told something about sex and travel in a certain in two words is probably going to offend you. <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's that's an interesting point. I get that question, but subtly differently all the time. Is which is people coming up to me in the upstream community or if our community going, I'm interested in X. When are you going to do it? And my response is, I don't know because I'm not being paid necessarily to do X. FR is an open source community who are is a group of people or companies, people funded by companies to do work. And those companies have agendas mm. or use cases that they're interested in. I shouldn't say agendas. Those companies have use mm. cases they're interested in. And I, as a developer- well, it turns for, into an agenda, right? They have a use case to do a thing that becomes your agenda in, yes. you know, whatever. That's And that is, but that is the price we pay for open source because yeah. open source is free, but it's also not free at the same time. And so I guess my whole point of raising the issue was to highlight to people, don't be stupid, ask smart questions. Understand that an open source project is either somebody who works for a vendor who's being paid to contribute to meet the use cases or the needs of the vendor that put them there. But there's also people who are doing it for their own purposes, for fun, to contribute, or maybe they work for a customer who has their use cases, which sets their agenda perhaps. Um, so if you ask for feature X and expect it to be put in, you should be ready to be told no. Exactly. And potentially even stronger words like bugger off or are you stupid <laughs> or why if you want to pay for it. You know what I mean? Like So so as to, to bring that point home, the last release and had over 60 different committers. I can think of two people in that list of people who commit it who are doing this in their free time, right? And and one of those people does a lot of work in his free time and spends a lot of time doing work. It's not, he's not paid for it. It's not his day job, but he's doing it for, because he likes it. But most of the people doing work on FRR are being paid to do that work by a company. So be smart when you ask for features in. (laughs) Or go talk to a company that supports FRR and convince them to do the feature for you. So Make if you have, case. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there have been more than one occasion where someone comes to the FR community going, I'm having problems with this feature or this bug. And I know that they are using FRR via support contract with Cumulus Linux and go, just go open a case so we can get that feature tracked and I can get time, get told to go work on that. Because if they don't do that, <laughs> I have to, I have to go, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Uh, sorry, that's an interesting way of thinking about open source with commercial involvement, that the lever of commercial involvement can be used to drive an open source project in a direction. Uh, that's the, that's the, the way it, isn't the way it works, though? Well, I'm not sure that everybody knows it, so I'm sort of highlighting it for yeah, everybody who's not, listening, right? Yeah, it, it's not clear to everybody. A lot of people are, have a very altruistic view of open source where it's, oh, it's all community and we're all friends here and we're doing things for each other and you know everything wants to be free and you know there's more that perspective behind it for, for a lot of folks that are a little naive about what's really going on, especially with these heavy-duty, really serious things like a routing protocol suite. 
Mm. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. If the if the bug's really bad, I'm going to go fix it. If it's a rip problem and it's in a weird corner case of rip, I may not yep. pay a whole lot of attention. Yeah. But if it's BGP and something's not working in BGP, I'm going to probably pay a bit more attention because I know my NVIDIA, Cumulus, Mellanox customers are going to be interested in BGP issues. They're going to run across it. Well, Don, tell me what platforms I can run FRR on today. Because someone heard Linux, then maybe they think x86, but um, but then you mentioned all these other network operating systems, which implies white box switching. So talk to us about platforms. Sure. So from a platform perspective, uh, all current development of FRR is done with Linux. And OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD, and Solaris Unless someone works on the data plane perspective of the overarching FRR feature, it's not going to exist. So, so all current work done that needs kernel work as well is done on Linux, as I understand it. I'm not aware of anyone doing OpenBSD changes for EVPN right now, as an example. I'm not aware of anyone doing OpenBSD changes to allow it to work with VRFs, although OpenBSD has the ability to make a VRF via its container, but no one's done the work to make it happen. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the issue here is FRR, you're working up at the control plane level. You need to have something that can program the forwarding plane, the data plane. And yes. in the case of Linux, it's the kernel. And in the case of a lot of these others, it's it's those particular kernels. So if no one's doing that kernel work, the data plane can't get programmed. Exactly. And that's exactly the point is that unless someone has taking the time. So it's a it's a hand-in-hand approach. EVPN is a great example, right? Uh, EVPN multi-homen is starting to come into upstream FRR. There is kernel work in the bridge drivers to make that work properly in Linux. And that code has to be upstreamed at the same time. Another great example is the NextHop group work that went in recently by David Ahern in the Linux kernel. That went into the Linux kernel, unless you're running like a kernel for, I'm sorry, 5.1 or greater, it, you can't use the next top group hmm. feature FFR fully to its full extent. So you have to. So so one of the things we have is you, you can go to the FR route and docs and and see the matrix of um, of features and platforms and what's supported and what not supported and where it's supported on from a kernel perspective as well. And that's a decision point as an end user or operator that they have to make about okay, I want to use EVPN. Therefore, I must use the Linux kernel 4.18 or greater. And there's still caveats there. So just be aware of that. So there's, there's features. That's one thing we've kind of emphasized that here as far as our, my platform choice. But then there's also performance. Um, how does that impact things? So, so there's three different performance, well, two different performance levels, really, right? There's the kernel or non-ASIC forwarding. There, well, actually, there's three. I'm sorry. There's basic kernel forwarding. There's um, software forwarding via eBPF or DBDK that provide a faster performance. And there's um, ASIC forwarding, which is the fastest performance. And each one of those has their own kind of uh, trade-offs and issues that you have to be aware of. As an example, if I wanted to, one, I'm sure people you've had talks about eBPF or DBDK, right? So eBPF is the a Linux kernel, in-kernel ability to do packet forwarding at a lower level and make the decisions faster and you can do very, very fast forwarding. DBDK is a user space solution that does the same thing, but DBDK requires you to do uh, recompilation of your software to make, take advantage of it. Whereas eBPF, if I'm using that, I have to program the kernel, but I don't have to recompile my user space. Mm-hmm. So it's you have to be aware of those things, and and um, you have to do some research and research, and you have to do some spend some time getting it to work right for you. So there's a whole bunch of different modes here. What about when you're doing forwarding in silicon? Because you're talking about FRR from a software point of view. Where do, where's the match between uh, FRR and then loading the forwarding entrance into some sort of silicon asset, say? in a switch or a hardware router of some sort? Yeah, so there's, from my perspective, there's three different ways of doing that, right? So there's the cumulus model, which is the kernel's the source of truth. And there's a special user space program that syncs up the ASIC to, to the kernel state. There's the um, 
traditional vendor or uh, like Sonic uses this model where they use the, a Fordham plane manager to not install the routes into the kernel, but they they have their the SAI or SDK install the routes directly via its own external database from the kernel. And then there's right. the and there's uh-huh. uh, the third way that I, that people are doing is when they have remote data planes where it's not local, where I have to program a remote data plane that's not local to me. So somehow I have to get the control plane decision to the remote data plane so it can be programmed. And that's kind of the um, SD-WAN situation. And there's some companies doing that. Right. Uh, If you're doing it in the kernel, then it's more of a software forwarding. Yeah. And and that's definitely, and one of the advantages of the kernel from my perspective is that user space is just user space. I don't have to do anything special. If I decide that I don't like FRR, and that's not a great idea from my perspective. That, <laughs> and I want to use. Well, provably so. It's not like it's not like any of the other software routing demons have have um, achieved the popularity of FRR, right? Yeah. So if I want to use, just, just to position FRR in the in the ecosystem, FRR is probably the dominant routing software that is in BGP, OSPF, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. project that's out there on the internet today and much more so than a range of others which are sort of haven't been able to build a viable community to innovate rapidly. Is that reasonably fair? I agree with you. I think, um, like, take Bird as an example. I, I think Bird's BGP is really great if you're doing internet exchanges. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I think, space for competition there. I think in some ways Bird is better because people like the way you can configure Bird for internet exchanges. And, and typically that's uh, when I, it's considered better from a, um, when I have, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 lines of config with prefix lists, ACLs and, mm-hmm. and route maps. And people like the configurability of Bird. And something we're working on from an FR perspective, there's still work there, but I agree in general, FR is, is more commonly used. Yeah, that's my perception is that it's fairly widely used for a wider range of use cases. So there are people using BGP, I want to say BGPD on FreeBSD in some cases and Bird. Yeah. And there's a couple of others, but they don't seem to have the sort of energy. Like the a success of an open source project, to my mind, is often measured by its vibrancy and the participation rates and the number of commits. Not just the number of commits, but the, you know, the diversity and and the motivation of the people involved. And you're saying that a lot of the people involved in FRR are financially motivated. And that's actually quite realistic um, because it's necessary. Not everybody works on these things for free or for, or for peanuts either. I don't see how open source projects can be run by as a project, a large open source project. It's, you, it's a full-time job. Mm. It's someone has like, that's exactly why the Linux kernel has actual full-time maintainers mm-hmm. and th- they do nothing but make sure in general make sure oh this code looks okay I c- it can go into the next kernel right that's their full-time job talk to me about uh, about goals donald the um for, for free range routing it, it started some years ago it was a fork of quagga there was controversy there and so on and i think there were some goals there about just getting more features committed more quickly because it wasn't really happening in the Quagga community. Maybe I'm misremembering some of that stuff, but what's going on today as far as goals? What's the, what's the target if there's a, like a long-term game plan for FRR? So, so the long-term game plan from my perspective is I want people to think of FR routing as a world-class routing stack. And when I go to make a decision about a new network operating system, or I'm going to do any type of control plane work, the, the question isn't what stack should I use is why am I not using FRR? That's the, that's the question I want people to be asking themselves. I think I've kind of said that in the past, but it's kind of expanded beyond that as well. So in that <clears throat> we have to provide a framework, we being the FR community has to provide a framework that people can contribute in a meaningful manner. And so that means things like all new features coming in must have a topology test associated with it that proves that that feature works, A. 
and B, ensures it keeps working in the future. Okay, so just, just to park on that point, you're building around it the kind of uh, testing structure and uh, the kind of things you'd have with any grown up, for lack of a better word, um, software software project. This needs to work. It needs to work reliably and predictably. And in order to make that happen, you're putting a, a bunch of testing and so on around it as required for the feature before you're going to consider accepting it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a job that the submit and developer must do or someone associated with that developer. I don't really care who writes the topology test. There's been cases in the past where someone's come with a new feature and I'm like, oh, that's great. And I went and wrote, I went and personally wrote the topology test for them because I wanted it done. So d does topology test mean scale or does it just mean, uh, you know, some, some arbitrary topology at works? It, it, some arbitrary, in general, it's some arbitrary topology and work. I have, I personally have added some topo, topo tests that install things like a million routes by 32 ECMP to make sure it still works. And to make sure it still works within a, some some set amount of time. So there is some scale testing, but I'm really more concerned at this point in time about correctness, mm -hmm. functionality, than scale. Scale is important. Don't get me wrong, but if if I'm getting the um, a flow spec feature for V6, like recently, uh, B, I, uh, BGP got IPv6 flow spec from a control plane perspective. If I can't encode and decode that BGP flow spec message appropriately and I can't talk to other people, well, the feature is useless, right? So so I need to prove that that's correct as well. All right, so we were talking about project goals and then I might have sidetracked you a little bit, but we, but uh, but I thought that was really important to emphasize. You know, this, uh, this isn't just willy-nilly people are showing up and, uh, you know, slapping features in there. Oh, is it buggy? Crap, sorry. We should have, like, I don't know, tested it. It's not like that. There's a lot of structure and... Uh, maturity built into the process of adding code to free-range routing. And that I think that goes back to our point of you're trying to do a, a world-class routing stack here, and there's a lot of folks involved in in making that happen. So so going back to project goals then, you know, what else have we got here, Don, for the long term? Well, it's not so testing is really important, but beyond that, I need to be able to to inform people about the new feature. So we documentation has become just as important. If I make a CLI change, I add a new feature someone has to write that documentation to say that it, here's how you use it as an end user. There is, we are, this is a, this is a whole from a uh, project perspective in that there are still sections of FRR that don't have any documentation. I can't fix that other than going back and slowly writing the, the documentation, but I can insist that all new code has documentation associated with it. So I don't get further into the hole so it allows us to dig out. So there's, so we have requirements now that you must have documentation, you must have topology tests. I also, one of the things that we look at, I shouldn't say I, we as a community look at is the new CLI associated with that feature. Is it well thought out? Did you just throw something together? Did you, did you what other ways can we do that feature or CLI to, to better allow the end operator to do their work? and not have to touch a million things. I, I hate configuring CLI where I have to go touch 15 things before something works, especially on things that that are easily defined in the end user, which you just expect to work. You talked about operator and interacting with FRR, and you didn't lead with uh, our awesome API, and we've been working with the Ansible folks to uh, to create these awesome playbooks or anything like that. You, you said CLI. So is that where I'm going to spend most of my time when I'm working with FRR? It's it, so you've you've kind of hit the 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 there's there's two main projects from a community perspective right now. There's telco work, which is segment routing, and the other main project is Yang slash NetConf integration. So pre NetConf Yang integration, there's probably hundred hundred fifty thousand lines of CLI code in FRR. In order to, and I personally believe in projects that do evolution versus revolution approach to, we don't throw away code, we rework in place. So if I have 100,000 lines of code, I have to integrate that a bit at a time. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in other words, you, CLI is not a consumer of some API that's sitting on the back end just ready to use. It's actually you know, integrated. You said 150,000 lines of code there. Yeah, so this, if you go look at the CLI and start looking at all the files that have the the underscore CLI or underscore VTY.C, it's 100, 100, 150,000 lines of code. Every single one of the, and if we're to 
to get NetConf and Yang support in, you have to go rewrite 150,000 lines of code. That is not, that's a huge project. And not only do you have to do that, you have to decide on the NetConf and Yang API. That is, that is community agreement. That's not, that's not programming, that's politics at that point in time. Do all the Yang models even exist for all the features that are in uh, FRR? So, so, so the, so there's two sources of Yang models that people look towards. There's the IETF Yang model and there's the open config Yang model, right? Uh, and both of them don't always encapsulate everything that FR can do. Right. So there has to be work done to expand or change those models. A great example of that is the BGP unnumbered feature that FR has. None of the IETF or open config models think about BGP from an unnumbered perspective. So we have to add that to the model and that takes discussion in the community, hence work. So, so we as a community have a once a week Yang meeting where we sit down and talk about the, the models. We talk about the, the work people are doing to get that done. So, so current, currently, um, NetConf Yang is a work in progress. Some demons have it, some don't. It's, but as we go on, as time goes on, more and more is being switched over. It's a it's a complete rewrite of the CLI, and then and then we're going to have the the ability to allow programs to fully change FRR without having to go through the CLI. Because at that point, the CLI just becomes a consumer. Um, yes. Of of NetConf and Yang, and so anybody else that wants to consume that could do the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But that's that's a work in progress. That that sounds like years. Of uh, of work, you know, kind of a feature at a time, and it's been two years now, year and a half, two years now of work, and we just finished up the BGP. We agreed on the BGP Yang model, and people are programming to it, towards it now. We have a EVPN Yang model that we're programming towards now. We've finished uh, Static D's Yang model. We've f- finished uh, VRRP's Yang model. We finished uh, BFD's Yang model. So there's just it's just you decide on a bit of piece of work, you do it, and you move on to the next piece. It's just, and it's it's both a groups of companies coming together, going, you define the model, I'll work on the code, I'll work on the the back end code a little bit, and I'll do this piece. There's that kind of horse trading going on in the back end, and it's driven by people that ultimately, as they consume FRR, want these all. They want NetConf and Yang to be there. It's not just like an idealized. Well, we think we should do it that way. I mean, there's someone yeah. that actually is driving this and wants this. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, the VMware is is driving the Yang effort in FRR, as an example. They they showed uh, interest and leadership there. So I said I asked them to do it, and they're doing it. It's mm-hmm. great. I don't have to do it. <laughs> I, was, uh, I could feel that coming i could feel that coming. no i mean so you have, as a as an as a upstream community you have to realize that when you have 500 600,000 lines of code you can't run everything that's too much so you have to find people who are interested in in that whatever they're interested in and encourage them to go do that work so if I see someone showing interest in BGP and I start having problems with BGP, I'm going to go start asking them questions and start asking them to lead a little because it helps A, build up their interest and B, it provides leadership through the entire community and spreads the leadership out. So how has the community changed over the years then? Uh, we've just basically added more people. The, from a change perspective, I, I, I think the, the community also has come to, the, to terms with... Um, how to work together. There was probably the first two years we fought a lot, fought maybe too strong. There was a lot of discussions about how we would even do work together. That's less of that now and more of a, okay, we have this problem. Who's going to do it? How are we going to do it together? Well, fighting initially just because of uh, conflict of interest with the various companies that were involved? I think it was a, how do we work together? So you, if you throw a group of people together, in a room and say, go fix this problem, that room has to sit down and just, and figure out how they're going to work together before they can go do the work, especially if it's a big problem. And if it's just a bunch of disparate people too, right? So, so it was a large discussion about how we as a group decide we're going to trust each other first. And it's an open source community-driven project with whatever the governance model is, but it's not like a company 
where you've got a hierarchy and uh, specific commands from top down that say, this is going to happen. It's, it's everyone's yeah. got to work together and figure it out. This whole thing wouldn't have worked if I, you know, if we got in a room and someone said, you're going to listen to me. That's not the way it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You know, if, uh, if VMware comes to the table and says, I have this idea and I go, that's, that's stupid. That's not going to endear that person from continuing to do the work. Hmm. Right. And, and, and they have ideas about how, and I, I shouldn't say it shouldn't have said VMware, some company, right. The, every, I, I, every company that comes to the table, like we said earlier, has their own politics and agenda and no one person necessarily has the right answer. So we got to recognize well, that. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Linux, Linus Torvalds was smart enough to do it all on his own, but only for so long until he needed a team of people. And now the the Linux kernel, just the kernel, is maintained by, I want to say, hundreds. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. Like it's, it's not a one man. He's the face of it. He's the nominal CEO of the kernel, if you want. There's currently 21 maintainers of FR, and all of them contribute on a regular basis, all of them have permission to push code into the code base. And all of them have the ability to say, stick their foot in the sand and go, this is bad, you need to do it a different way. And mm-hmm. here's why. And then w- when that happens, we have to come together as a community and discuss that. So, so the, to, to, you know, the, like I said, the first couple of years was figuring us, us figuring out how we were gonna work together. So there's less, at this point in time, there's less discussion about how we're going to work together and how we're going to do the pro- solve the problem because we figured that part out already. And mm-hmm. that takes time from my perspective. Well, Donald, I want you to catch us up on the routing suite at this point. So we last talked, it was 2018. We might've been at an IETF conference, something like that. I don't remember the we exact circumstance. It was, was that right? Okay. Well, we were kicking around like, uh, oh, I think you know EIGRP might be fun. You were like thinking of that might be a you know a fun little side project to add it to FR and so on. Anyway, start at the top. What do you what do you want to highlight about what's been going on in the routing suite for the last couple of years? Well, we can just start with EIGRP, I guess. Um, sure. So we've accepted it into the um, to the code base. It's still beta from my perspective. It needs it needs an owner slash uh, champion. And I know Donnie Savage from ERGRP land is working on it. That's, that's not a surprising name to pop up. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes mm. in, he sticks his head up occasionally and asks a question to me or <laughs> says I'm doing this. And so work's being done where we are. I don't really know. We'll be back to the podcast discussion shortly, but come with me for a couple of minutes while we talk about network automation and related tasks like configuration management. Network automation is, depending on how you define it, hard. Maybe you don't have the time or the interest to learn Ansible and Python and then create your very own Rube Goldberg machine, and I don't blame you at all. There is nothing wrong with that. I oscillate between wanting to control everything myself and just wanting to get the job done, and I bet you do too, and sponsor Unimus feels our pain. Unimus is an automation and config management solution made for for us, for network engineers, not developers. They believe that networkers don't have to be developers. I mean, some of you maybe you want to be developers, and that's fine, but you shouldn't have to be a developer in order to automate. So what is this thing Unimus has made? Well, think of Unimus as turnkey automation as opposed to something like Ansible, which is more like Lego bricks. With Unimus, you can go from nothing to deploying a VLAN to 100 switches in about 15 minutes. Unimus handles more than automating configuration tasks, though. They also take care of configuration and change management as well as config backup. And here's a neat idea. Unimus runs on-premises. Kind of makes sense since that's where much of your network is, but have you noticed how everyone wants to manage your infrastructure from the cloud these days? Anyway, let's say your network is a little odd or is managed by multiple groups. Well, fear not. Unimus supports multi-vendor networks with over 140 vendors supported and is also multi-tenant. So go try Unimus and see if they are what you're after for network automation and config management. How do you do that? Unimus.net slash packet pushers. You can get a two-week unlimited license paired with a technical demo call to get you started. That's Unimus.net slash packet pushers. U-N-I-M-U-S dot net slash packet pushers. And our thanks to Unimus for sponsoring today's episode. And now back to the discussion. There has, in, in BGP alone, there's been a lot of RFC compliance 
in just the 7.4 release, we got RFC 7606, which is uh, when, when uh, we receive a malformed route, we do withdrawals instead of reset the session. RFC 6608, uh, subcodes for SM, the finest state machine errors, what you should do there. Uh, RFC 6286, AS wide for the AS uh, autonomous system wide stuff for BGP. Mm-hmm. Unequal cost, multipath. Uh, we turn on RFC 8212 by default, and that's the um, that's the RFC that states that you must have a uh, route map policy per peer. That's got turned on. So from from a like I kind of said earlier, we are playing catch up in some respects, and and just implementing all the little millions of little features that BGP needs. So that's what we've been doing in BGP. For making it, in other words, you you have a core BGP daemon that does all the basic things, and now you're adding more and more and more of the little RFCs with smaller, more incremental features that have been added to the suite over the years. And it seems like BGP is never really done. There's always something new baking in the IE. Exactly. You're just you're just adding the things that are uh, of the greatest interest to the community to add. Exactly. Yeah. So seven four got um, Gracel restart support in both Zebra and BGP. Uh, oh, so it, what's zebra for people that don't know? Ah, that's the 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 rib. Zebra mm-hmm. is the rib, and the and your parlance, right? And the fib would be the kernel or the ASIC. Yeah. Okay. And so zebra is so <clears throat> from an architectural standpoint, zebra is the uh, the rib, and each individual daemon. So we have a BGPD daemon, we have an OSBFD daemon, we have an ERGPD daemon, and they talk. They just they figure out what routes they want to install. They talk to zebra. And Zebra decides, oh, this BGP route is the best route that I received from both ERHP and OSPF, so I'm going to install that one in the in the FIB. So that's the decision point there. Let's see, uh, 7.4 also got uh, LDP, got ordered label distribution control. Sharp D got support for LSPs. And I know you had a question about what Sharp D is, and let's talk <laughs> about that real quick. So, so yeah, let me set this up for you, for you, listener. So I was, uh, I had loaded up FRR and I'm looking at the different protocols that I can light up and I see Sharp D and I'm like, wait a minute, I know Donald Sharp is one of the lead developers behind this whole thing. Did he just write a routing protocol for fun? What is this thing? So tell yeah, us, so, Donald, what is so it? So it started about two years back and I was testing or trying to test route installation times from an upper level protocol through Zebra to the kernel and back up to Sharp to know that it was done. But there is no, there was no, there was no way to do that in FR. I could, you know, I could have, I could have set up BGP to receive routes and then have those installed from an off box or, you know, some, some other BGP process. But then I'm, I'm also measuring the BGP time to process that route. I'm not interested in that necessarily. Right. So I wrote a, a program called Sharp D as a way to say, and you can actually generate a million routes by with one CLI. You can do a sharp D, sharp install route one zero zero zero, give it a next top group, and and how many routes I wanted to install, and it will install those routes for you. And it's just one a one line CLI, and uh, it provides me timings for how long that takes. Mm-hmm. And I thought that um, I wrote that code, and I thought that. I, would, I submitted it and I thought people would go, great idea, stupid name, let's rename it. And it went in within two hours. Because, and so I think, and, and I was, it was a joke between me and Daniel Walton. We were talking about what, you know, when I was writing the code, Daniel was sitting across from me. Um, and I, for those of you who know, Daniel Walton wrote um, a bunch of, helped write a couple RFCs for BGP. And he was, he's, was really instrumental in some BGP work that, that both Cumulus did and Cisco did. Mm. And, um, Daniel just joked I, that I should call it Sharp D, and we, <laughs> and I was like, "That's a great idea," and it was just, just, and so, but that's what happened, and it was, I, I really thought that someone's go, "Great idea, change the name," and I would have done it, but it went in, and it was, it's too late it now, baby. It's uh, your, your, your your fingerprint is uh, indelibly marked upon it. There it is, exactly. So, but, so, but, but at it's, its core, then it's all about that testing. You just wanted to have a, a simple way to cram a bunch of routes in and, and out and confirm that they all were installed, and then you know get timing and all that without protocol overhead uh, exactly. getting in the way. And I needed to 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 do to use the. I wanted to test the. Um, 
It's called Zappy. It's the Zebra API. It's the way upper-level protocols talk to Zebra to install routes, to receive notification about interfaces, to to say, it's a message hey, bus. It's a message exactly. bus between. So all the protocol, all the individual parts of it are. But they need to signal to each other, so there's a message bus. Yeah, and, and and typically now, so like like that's a great point. It's a message bus. So I should have said that. So if if I have a BGP install route and I have redistribute BGP and OSPF, BGP installs the route through Zappy to Zebra. Zebra goes, oh, thank you. Decides it, installs it, and then will tell OSPF, hey, here's your redistributed route. So it's hmm. it's bidirectional, but it's not bidirectional BGP to OSPF. It's BGP down to Zebra, yeah. back up to OSPF, because Zebra makes the decision point about that. And Zebra makes all the and knows and understands all about the underlying interfaces and and all like like it 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 reads the L2 neighbor table. It understands interfaces, it understands routes, it understands labels, and knows how to install them. It knows so how to install. It's more than a message bus, it's actually more. Uh, device-dependent data as well. I would say it's a message bus, but a message bus that is specific to route-in questions. I don't, I yeah, can't. Well, yeah, okay, um, yeah, yeah. So it's it's got to be, a, but there's got to be a master repository for information, right? And, that, and that's Zebra. You don't want to, yeah, and in that's general, Zebra. So it's a message bus come repository. Um, but in the case of routing, the repository has to contain connected interfaces, you know, forwarding tables, blah, blah, blah. They don't belong in the routing daemons per se. The routing daemon can query the master repository to be able to guess, say, oh, is this forwarding entry in the database or is this, and as you say, then Zebra signals to OSPF to say, oh, there's a route here that's flagged as being for your attention. You need to inject that into the, you know, your process, et cetera. Exactly. That makes sense. That's not something that was in... Opera, uh, network operating systems 20 years ago. In the old days, they used to actually signal between, they used to signal directly from RIP to OSPF. There wasn't a central bus. Yeah, so if you go back to classic iOS. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so classic iOS was a flat memory model, run to completion operating system. And when BGP needed to talk to OSPF, it just called the OSPF. Or yeah, ERGP right. needed to talk mm. to, OS, to BGP, it just called mm. the BGP directly. Um, and that's kind of changed over the years. If you go look at like, what Nexus is doing, they have different individual demons as well now. Yeah. Um, but you know, they they don't necessarily think about. They use the Linux kernel for um, operating system. But they don't use it for data plane forwarding. But, yeah, yeah. And Arista talks a lot about its system DB architecture. Yeah. Same sort of thing. It's a message bus or a single source of truth for the operating system. Exactly. And they tried to flag that. And um, so, just in case you ever wanted to know, I knew, I, I learned this the hard way because that is why. Back when I was doing my CCIEs back in the dark days, in the old days, <laughs> you could redistribute a route from BGP into OSPF, but there was no guarantee that OSPF would redistribute it back into BGP. Because if the code was balked, it would be balked in one, might be balked yeah. in one way, but not the other. There was no, yeah, things could be inconsistently inconsistent or unpredictably inconsistent quite easily because of, and that's why that master, I've gotten really big on this master source of truth over the years because I've so much pain and learning. So Don, any other anything else to highlight for us on uh, the routing protocol suite? Yeah, so like the seven five release is coming out in a few weeks, and it's getting a whole bunch of stuff as well. So it's is is ISIS. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that, but it's getting segment routing and verf support. It's ISIS. Get, ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> ISIS. Yes, I've always said it as ISIS. Yeah, I, I say I say. I is, can is. imagine. I can imagine if you're one of those people who calls MPLS mipples, then ISIS <laughs> would be the. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'd, I'd be I'd be likely to call it mipples just to annoy people. Sometimes, <laughs> some days you just some days you just want to like, yeah, you know, just go, just yeah. So from a uh, from a Yang perspective, uh, FR is getting a, a rib model. It's getting the route map filter model. It's getting static routes. It's getting BFD and seven five release EVPN. We're getting EVP and multi homing. It's coming in. In seven five, it's partially there. Mm-hmm. It's not fully there. It's getting next top group utilization, where effectively I can install a next top group from BGP and have BGP install routes directly on that next top group. That's a okay. that a next top group utilization allows you to do things like fast reroute or pick, or and also allows you to do things like backup routes or backup next tops. I'm sorry mm. for for your routes, and it's it's the next. It's going to allow FRR to really expand its capabilities and converge much faster. I was just going to say the big the big deal there is yeah it's pre-computed a, a, a 
a failover route, if you will. So if your primary route goes away, he doesn't have to think, reconverge and think really hard about the, the next forwarding path. It's already got one there. It just switches over yep. to it. Exactly. And that's going to be, be able, BGP is going to be able to control that directly from BGP land. Uh, we're getting JSON support for PBR and PIM. Uh, OSBF's getting segment round ECMP support. Uh, BGP is getting extended community sequence numbers. RPKA has getting VERF support, and it's also getting IPv6 flow spec. So those are the kind of the big things. Uh, and I, uh, that's all. This is all seven five stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's all seven five. So that's kind of where what's imminent and coming in the future is lots and lots of more segment routing work. I was going to ask you. I mean, we've got some sort of segment routing in there already. Yeah. Um, uh, ISIS has segment routing. OSPF just got it. A couple of releases ago, we're going to get BGP SRB6. We have someone working on that right now. Mm-hmm. I know someone's working on BGP link state as well. That should be coming shortly as well. Someone from Orange is working on that. They must really want that. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> just, everybody, yeah. everybody shakes their head at BGP link state, but somewhere along the line, it just keeps getting legs. Yeah, it's, it won't go away. Yeah, it won't die. Yeah. Does it make any sense to you, Don? Or you're not going to express an opinion? I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't fully understand it, but if someone's going to take the time, write the code, write the topo test, and write the doc. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Let's pause today's episode to talk about open source network operating systems. We're at a point where the hyperscalers most of these NASAs were aimed at, they've deployed them at scale, they've knocked off most of the rough edges, and have made them ready for use by a broader number of organizations. That kicker for the average enterprise? Yeah, it's usually support, because... Nobody wants to deploy a NAS of any sort, even an open source one that you can just have without support. And that is where sponsored Dell Technologies comes in. Dell has been working with the open source Sonic NAS since the early days. They've contributed a lot of the code. They know the product well. And if you become a customer of Enterprise Sonic Distribution by Dell Technologies, they will use that deep institutional knowledge to support your Dell Sonic deployment. All right, fair enough. We got the basics out of the way. You can invest in open source Sonic from Dell and Dell's going to back it and support your company. But why would you go this direction? And the answer is Sonic itself. So three reasons here. One, Sonic is open source, and there's a goodly ecosystem that is built around it. There's a lot of action going on around Sonic. Two, there are lots of Switch hardware options from Dell that will run Sonic, including the Dell EMC PowerSwitch Z and S series. You're going to be able to build the data center fabric that you need. Three, the modern Sonic NOS architecture. Sonic is container-based. There is a data center-ready layer two and layer three networking feature set. It's designed for centralized management via REST and GNMI interfaces, although you also get a CLI. And there's Yang support, including open config models. But again, don't forget the other big part of this. This is Dell. You're getting a global organization with depots all over the world and folks on staff that have actually contributed to Sonic code. In other words, Dell is de-risking open source for your enterprise data center. So if you want to find out more, listen to Heavy Networking episode 521, where we get into the details of the features, the upgrade process, L2, L3 capabilities, and more of Sonic. You can also visit packetpushers.net slash dellsonic. That's packetpushers.net slash dellsonic. And that's just a redirect. That's going to take you right to Dell's Sonic landing page. If you do chat with the folks at Dell Technologies about Sonic, please let them know that you heard about it on Packet Pushers, and we thank Dell Technologies for being a sponsor. And now back to today's episode. So we try to, like, we kind of said this already, but we try to operate under the big tent approach where if you have a few values... No, I understand. No, you're quite right. If somebody's willing to write the code, write the tests, and for it to work and, you know, all that sort of stuff, and the testing is the key part to me, I wouldn't... Because and I assume that the development of such code is um, done in such a way that anything that goes wrong in that BGP LS would be isolated from the remain from the rest of the system, perhaps. But I would sure hope so. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't want somebody writing BGP LS and then uh, impacting the main BGP daemon sort of thing. Yeah. But it just struck me as you were reading out all those features is. I have this perception that networking hasn't really changed much in 20 years and you read out all these features and it actually confirmed the fact that nothing's really changed in 20 years. Exactly. Because all of those features are little tiny tweaks, like pimples on the buttock of routing (laughs) type features. Like, like none of it's an innovation. Segment routing is basically reminds me of ATM, you know, (laughs) of cell based 
folding and in, in the attempt to try and the, the sheer lack of, of innovation there is astonishing to me. Like I love the work. And I love the value that it's bringing to people, but there's no radical changes going on in FRR. We're just implementing what's out there. Was that overly harsh? I have to, I have to think about that. Um, one of, we kind of didn't get it fully into it, but one of the project goals from my perspective is, is innovation. Hmm. When someone comes to the IETF with a new RFC or a draft for a new Rodden Demon, and let's take Open Fabric as an example, that's a draft for um, a change in the ISIS protocol. Mm. And um, we got that. And it's one of the reference implementations. So, from an innovation perspective, Rodden, there isn't anything special about. Open fabric, other than the fact that it think it's it's meant I, it's is is for a data center, and I can figure out where I am in the in the yeah. cost topology, and mm-hmm. and there is no other routing suite that has that implementation, right? So from an innovation perspective, FR is there, and we're adding new value and adding new code, but mm-hmm. is has routing fundamentally changed? I think, now? Yeah, the challenge. Yeah, at the end of the day, ISIS has been around for. 30 years now, um, using it for the data center requires some tweaks at the edge to optimize flooding, yes. um, you know, and discovery and so forth. But that, and you, as you say, you're a broad, broad adoption. If the IETF is going to go through the mind boggling process of producing an RFC and it actually gets approved, it would be reasonable for you to implement it if somebody wants to write the code and deploy it. But stepping back a little bit from the, from the coal phase here, it still boggles me that we are still using the same protocols. There's actually no true re, yeah, you know, innovation coming through. We're tweaking around the edges. Like putting link state into BGP is taking the worst of OSPF and strapping it into the worst of BGP. Doing segment routing is saying, you know, the bits about ATM networking from the 1990s, that was, let's put that on top of IP and see if anybody likes that. Like, so where does Rift stand in this whole thing? <laughs> It's only a matter of time <laughs> until we 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 use it and call it innovation once again. You know, I don't know. Just just a so, feeling. I, so I can't you know, shake. EVPN is probably last five or ten years, right? That's actually fairly interesting from a layer two. This layer two stretching in a new way. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, EVPN is actually probably a thing that most looks like an innovation in the sense of the impact to customers is enormous. I can use a, an L three network underlay and start to do L2 over the top. So I can actually start to take steps away from an L2 infrastructure um, because I actually have to incur pain to do L2 on an EVPN infrastructure because I actually have to do EVPN and then I have to do multi-homing and then I have to stretch the domains and blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, I've got a layer three fabric. So as I migrate to layer three fabrics, there's a reward. So if I can move my storage away from Ethernet to L3, if I can move my hosts away from, you know, Ethernet failover or VLANs as security domains or whatever, then that changes over time. But, and that is an innovation to us at the outside, but inside the network, EVPN is just using BGP as a message, really. I agree. It's a message bus. That's what BGP is. That's what ERGRP is. That's what OSPF is. It's a message bus. Well, in part, they are message bus and algorithm and best route, best and own. Anyway. Get on my hobby horse. I'll put my hobby horse away now. <laughs> Ethan's pulling faces at me. <laughs> Don, I want to ask a, a consumption question here related to Docker. So in my wanderings with FRI, I discovered this huge Docker Hub repository with lots of FRR images and nightly builds and all the rest. Um, is that meant for the general consumer to actually you know, consume a, a Docker Hub image like that of FRR? Originally, no, it was meant as a way that us developers could do testing. But like you just said, people discovered it and started using it. And so we've started. <laughs> You're laughing, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> people discovered it. It was carefully hidden in the open source repository. <laughs> no, that, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yes, no, I, I, know it just, I found it and it wasn't painfully obvious that that was something I was supposed to, to be using. It's like, it's like, oh, look, I found this and there's all these images and it seemed to be regularly updated. So instinctively I said, okay, 
I should be able to pull down one of these images and use them and then just stepped on all kinds of landmines trying to make this thing work. Like, okay, you bring up the hub, it launches, there it is. You can go in and do the basic bits of configuration you need and then the daemons don't restart because reasons, oh, okay, I have to go and grant the Docker image some permissions so that it gets the rights it needs to restart. That's not really working. I can't find any documentation on this. Screw it, I'm gonna build an Ubuntu virtual machine and go from there, it's way easier. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Docker is mystifying <laughs> to me sometimes, but I say that as a uh, as a pure developer of of a routing protocol stack, right? Yeah. So, so like I said, uh, Docker the Docker code or repositories were originally used from a development perspective, where someone was just doing some work for themselves to make it easier for themselves, and it kind of grew, mm. and we started supporting it for people to use. And this goes into exactly kind of what I was talking about earlier is that our documentation wasn't done properly for that because when we started doing that work, there was no requirement that this change needed a Docker and needed documentation. So, so at this point in time, you, there's been probably three or four times over the last year where someone's come to us and said, hey, this isn't working just like you experienced, Ethan. And we helped them get through it. And then we ask them to update the docs for us. Help mm. us update the docs because you've lived the pain, you can help us. And, and that's what a end operator slash user can do to help if they're not sure where to help is, something's not quite working right and you went through the pain, help us get it right. Help us fix the documentation. In other words, I don't have to be a developer to be able to update documentation. I can be an, an end user consumer of the product and write documentation, and that's valuable and useful. Yeah, it's very valuable because you, your pain fixed in documentation makes it less painful for the next person. It's worth, from a community perspective, us to focus on those pain points that end users have. And when they come to us and go, hey, this isn't working right, I need to pay attention. And I need to spend time listening to them Say, and understanding what's going wrong about the documentation process and going and fixing it. So, so like every single release, there are documentation changes coming in that have nothing to do with current new changes. I go back, I personally make an effort when someone comes in and says, this is a problem. I, go, I try to go back and fix the documentation so the next time someone comes in, it's, it's easier. It's just, it, but it's a long, it's a long pole of, of, of a work in progress. So maybe the way to tie off the Docker Hub discussion is at this point, what started off as something for developer convenience has morphed into something that people can actually use for production. And the FRR's perspective is, the, you know, the community's perspective is, yes, you should be able to use a Docker image from this, uh, from the Hub for production, but we've got documentation challenges. And so if you're like, I'm, I'm pretty much a Docker noob. I don't, I don't spend much time there at all. So I don't know what I'm doing. So good documentation would have come in really handy. And that would get me to the point where, yeah, now I can spin this up as a Docker image and, uh, and make it go reliably. Someone's got to step up to the plate and, uh, and get that documented. And maybe that's me. Is that what you just said, Donald? <laughs> it's maybe it's you, but it's maybe it's me as well, right? It behooves the community to, to pay attention to it, to where the pain points of its users are. Because if you're not paying attention to that, you're 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 real trouble from a any development perspective. Fair enough, in my opinion. All right here's another use case question: um, Has FRR found a role in public cloud? And and I don't mean like the makers of public cloud where it's being used on the back end, but like you know, as a consumer, I've got an AWS VPC, let's say, and I need to stand up an FRR instance, and I do so. Is that a thing people do that you've heard much about? And and do you yeah, know much I think about people are doing cases? that? And that's yeah. what. Like well, I mentioned Vios earlier, I think people are using Vios for that. I think that makes sense from that perspective. Mm. I'm not. I don't know what else to say, but it's it's yeah. a use. It's a valid use case. I don't do it personally, mm. right? So it's kind of hard to know. And and not many people are coming to me going. Other than I've had people tell me it would be a great product to have the ability to have FR just deployable in the cloud because I need some basic routing. Mm -hmm. And. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're missing the point, though, aren't they? FRR is the routing software. It's not a router as such. Or do you want it to be that? I mean, isn't so, that the role of Cumulus to round out that package? Sure. Like, FRR is component in the Cumulus package, not just... Like, FRR doesn't do SNMP or Yang per se. No, but if I'm in the public cloud, I probably don't need more than 
one gig or 10 gig data plane forwarding, right? Mm, and right. probably a VM, and I have a VM that's connected to a bunch of interfaces and I put a couple CPUs into it. I can do that with FR right. out of the box without going to the EP, EBDPF or DPDK route of doing user space forwarding. It's when you start getting above 10 gigabytes per second that you start to need to do specialized things. So from, yeah. a, from a cloud perspective, dropping FRR in Linux and letting it handle the, the control plane is, is sufficient. Have you heard of anybody doing FRR on VPP? Like there's a, yeah. a mm. seems to be a group of people believing yes. that VPP's got some sort of mystic, um, mystic energy about it. And, and apparently we, do, we need a third, a third forwarding plane. <laughs> there's, there, there's actually a, um, on the FR out on Wiki, there's a doc on how they get VP work, VPP working with FR. Someone took right. the time to write that. Uh, just for those of you who don't know, DPDK is Intel's um, data plane acceleration, relies on hardware features in Intel CPUs. I thought it was ABG. Mellanox's. Uh, <laughs> Intel. Or NVIDIA's. <laughs> <laughs> you, you kind of have to say that. Is that that's your point? <laughs> so, uh, so the 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 person who is who maintains DPDK works yeah. at Mellanox Nvidia. So, is yeah. it Intel's or is it Mellanox Nvidia? Okay, well, historically, <laughs> it's been Intel, and Intel's put a lot of money into making DPDK. Yeah, a sure, fair enough. Uh, and then EBGP was a group of uh, I'm not sure who did the EBGP, but it's a uh, you mean e EBGP. EBPF. EBPF, yeah, yes. which is the, the data forwarding engine inside of Linux, which accelerates the software data plane, is that right? Yes, that's exactly then, what it is. Mm -hmm. And you can control and, and program stuff with EBPF programs, which right. is a special compile per time. Packet control. Yeah. yeah, you got per packet control and you can, you can, so the way the Linux kernel works without EBPF is that the, 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 the device driver gets the packet, pulls it off on a, like a ring buffer or something like that, and then passes it up for higher levels of the kernel control plane to do forward in. But with eBPF, I can put the forward in knowledge directly down in the device driver itself. And so I can get much, 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 much faster performance. Yeah, that's right. Because I'm not going many up more. Levels yeah, it doesn't move from memory location to memory location as it bubbles around the operating system yes. as it used to. And so eBPF is where, you, and you'll see a lot of service meshes talking about eBPF forwarding as they modernize themselves and get faster data paths through the OS. Uh, VPPP, VPP, P, as I remember it, is Cisco's um, data forwarding engine. Yes, yes. And uh, vector packet processing. And it does in some way to do with route selection as much as forwarding. Is that right? I'm not exactly sure of that. I've had a conversation with the guy who wrote VPP, but I don't really, it's been eight or nine mm. years. So I don't really remember enough to, to honestly yeah. be, to claim expertise there, but that's a we did a podcast we, with him on packet pushes. We did, yeah, some years back, six yeah. to eight years ago, and he explained the. But the 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 abiding memory I have of that is he was talking about the ability of VPP to do uh, very very fast lookups in large routing tables, and its ability to select next hops at speed, as I recall. I think that was Priority Q Show eighty five for anyone that wants to dig <laughs> into that. Just doing a quick <laughs> search here. Yes. Wow. Yeah, we were with that Dave is, Ward, Dave Barak, and a name, let's see, Makia Konstanzowick. I'm not close on that pronunciation, but I'm in the ballpark, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I think we got into all that architecture. And it also had its forwarding engine was also optimized as well. So my understanding was it was an, a lookup algorithm as much as, but that came out of the uh, VIC, the UCS VIC stuff, as I understood it. Uh, the, v, the NX1000 virtual switch. Yes. Apparently. And then before that came out of, uh, high-speed routers. So they lifted it out of the high-speed routing engines as well. So it's an algorithm as much as it's code, or at least it was back then. Well, Donald, I got one last question for you because we're getting uh, we're getting a little long on our runtime here. So, uh, but but that is just broadly about automation. So uh, there's a lot of network engineers that are getting into maybe Python because they want to write a few scripts to make their lives uh, you know a little quicker, or maybe they're getting into a more robust automation and they're looking at Ansible or uh, these other tools to help them stand up uh, networks as a system as opposed to individual devices and so on. You talked about network, NetConf and Yang earlier. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that. But for those folks who are automation-minded, do you have any other uh, comments beyond the work that's being done with NetConf and Yang, um, either 
tooling that you could point them to or projects that might be interesting if they want to automate their FRR deployments? I think definitely um, Ansible. There's an Ansible module that people should look at. Um, that is, uh, it's pretty straightforward from a, from a, it uses the CLI and it's pretty straightforward. It's not complicated. I think it probably needs some work. But from a config management, I think most people kind of roll their own, right? Because everyone's needs are kind of specialized. It's in, and, and the generic stuff hasn't quite solidified from my perspective, I would say. That's a great non-answer, by the way. Well, it, mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's not where you spend most of your time, but I thought yeah. you just, you know, you give us a few pointers on uh, what's going on in the community related to uh, FR and like, well, like for example, I've been dabbling in Python lately, and I didn't, I didn't see any libraries for uh, FRR in Python to do anything magical. There was nothing special that I that I spotted. Uh, nothing you're aware of either. Doesn't. No, I'm not that. aware of anything, unfortunately. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, again, to for those of you that are listening and you want to dive into free-range routing more, uh, some shows to go back to. Priority Queue Show 112, which was from August 2017. We talked to Donald at IETF uh, 98. Um, Heavy Networking Show 401, we, we that show was titled A Deeper Understanding of Free-Range Routing. That's August 2018. And then, of course, we've had our catch-up today. So if you want to listen to all of those, you'll have even more free-range routing knowledge Back to you, Donald. How can people keep up with you? You got a Twitter handle, LinkedIn, email, just whatever it is you'd like to share so that people know how to get in touch with you. Sure. I'm um, me, not you, sharp on Twitter. That's very insulting. That's just, what are you trying to say? We're all, none of us, you're the only one that's sharp. Me, not you, exactly. sharp. Come on, man. Well, me, not you was taken. <laughs> <laughs> okay. By the time I got around to it, so I had to come up with something. I um, also work with uh, Russ White. It's mainly his project, but he graciously allows me to come on his history of networking podcast and you can go to his rule11.tech and see the history of networking podcast that I, I participate in so that's been really nice too excellent very good well thank you donald for spending time today and for answering some of my questions that i've had as i've been uh, working on frr i've uh, been able to chat with you a little bit i really appreciate your generosity there uh, thanks to you for listening if you enjoyed this show hey there's a lot more of these kind of shows Fine and free technical podcast. We got a community blog and uh, a lot of other podcasts. If you weren't aware, beyond just heavy networking, you can find all of that at packetpushers.net. We're not just the one show, we're a whole bunch of shows, different topics cloud, IPv6, uh, full stack journey with Scott Lowe, for example, as your roles as a network engineer are probably expanding in this world where you got to wear many hats. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Packet Pushers. We're on LinkedIn if uh, you'd like to follow us there. And uh, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.